Welcome to Just the Taste. I'm Scott Curry with Chef's Best. We gather to talk about the trends in marketing, retail, and production in food and beverage that are shaping the industry. Joining us today is Washington Post reporter Maura Jedkis. Maura covers culture, food, and the arts for the Washington Post, where she has been for the past seven years. Prior to the Post, she was a reporter on News Channel 8 in Washington, D.C., and a freelance writer for a variety of publications, including Art News, D.C. Examiner, Current Magazine, and Washington City Paper. She also was a senior producer and blogger for U.S. News and World Report. Maura, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So uh, we're going to cover a wide range of topics, Maura. Um, You know, you cover... Uh, you know, the restaurant industry, uh, you know, some of the intersections between food and the arts and culture. Uh, so we have a, a lot to explore. Um, I'd like to, to ask you a, a, a few questions up front, though, with that. Uh, I think 2018 is uh, kind of the year that I think millennials have, have earned a seat at the table, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. certainly have found their voice and, and are, are, are kind of fully leveraging the power of social media. Um, they're of course media savvy, um, and, 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 you know, kind of entering management level jobs in the business world, which I think is giving them a little bit more, more voice and power and and women are, are, I think, finding their voice at the table in a myriad of ways after, uh, I think, frankly, being for the most part, I'm going to make a big statement here, silenced, uh, relative to their 50% population. So, so I turn to you and, and what's it like today being, I, I believe, a, a, a bit of a millennial yourself and a female, uh, mm-hmm. what's it like today at perhaps the most esteemed and recognizable newspaper in the world where you're, uh, you know, maybe, maybe carrying those, those two flags? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, this, this is just the best beat I could possibly be covering right now. There's so many interesting things happening in, in all of the intersections of these worlds, in feminism, in food, in culture, in the way that young people are um, raising their voice um, and changing the culture, too. And so I think that's one thing that's really great about writing about food for The Washington Post is that it kind of intersects with all of these different areas. You know, writing about food means you're also writing about politics, about the economy about the environment, about gender, about all of these different issues. So it's really been an exciting time to be covering all of these things. And, and, and what, what types of resources, I'm asking kind of here, but to get an insight into your day-to-day job, if you will, um, mm-hmm. what, what, what types of resources does the Post provide you, given that uh, you know, you're almost expected with being at such, a again, an esteemed newspaper uh, or new source overall. Uh, d- d- do you have researchers, or or is it is it a little bit incumbent on yourself to to do all the research? Because you know, in in reading your fascinating articles, it, you never just cover the topic, right? You, you're always, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, weaving in you know the different cultural traits or the trends, or or, or mm-hmm. you know, uh, which makes your article so so appealing. So. From a day-to-day standpoint, what's, what sorts of resources do you have at your disposal, or is it, or is it kind of the, the Mara Judka show a little bit? 
A little bit of both. Um, so we, uh, you know, we, we do have a great research team. They're world-class. They're wonderful. But um, I don't rely on them for most of the day-to-day stuff, usually just for bigger projects. Um, like when I'm writing about sexual harassment, for example, um, they have helped me do a lot of the legal research that I need for those types of stories. But when, when it comes to just kind of finding um, interesting studies or um, are working with our multimedia team, for example, that is usually coordinated by me too. But that's that's one of the great things about working for such a big paper is that you have all of these resources. We have world-class editors. We have this whole video team. They're amazing. So I'm very yeah. lucky. Awesome. Um, so much of your reporting has shown a spotlight on an industry that seems has always been silent about you know, rampant, I think, female harassment, you know, t- tolerating lewd behavior by customers. Uh, I-, I think there's horrifying stories of owners, managers, and bosses harassing female employees. And, and if perhaps no other industry has gone so far in objectifying women as, as restaurants. And of course, I'm referring to the restaurant industry here. Um, there was always, I think, a, a bit of a look, look the other way attitude, which might be even an understatement. Um, and if you, if we were to say that harassment it was almost institutionalized, what what is what is quote unquote special or 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 the reasons why about the industry and why this behavior became normalized um, or or particularly prevalent? Is there something about food and dining and in 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 the way the industry is organized and and I don't know some intersection with sexuality and power or something or some connection I'm missing. Obviously I'm turning to you for the answer here, but it's, it seems as you've shown the spotlight on, on restaurants, it's, it, it, it's, it has brought to light that it was almost institutionalized. And while harassment has been an issue uh, for, for millennia, uh, it seems like as we look at restaurants, it's like, wow, what, what was going on there and why? <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of factors um, that make a restaurant environment sort of perfect for <laughs> perfectly terrible for these kinds of things to happen. Um, I mean, one of them, one of the one of the aspects is that uh, you have um, a pretty extreme power imbalance um, in terms of a lot of times you have a, a restaurant where a chef is also an owner. Um, it might be their only restaurant, so they don't have a kind of corporate structure. They don't have like a human resources department. It's kind of just you and the chef. And if the chef is the person who might be harassing you, then there's really nowhere else you can turn other than to get another job. Mm. Um, and a couple of other factors that go into it, too, uh, are are the system. Um, you know, there have been studies that have alleged that the system of tipping contributes to harassment, too, because you have um, you have servers who they want to get good tips, obviously, and they want to work good shifts where you can get good tips. Um, And so if they're being harassed by a manager who determines their schedule, um, they're financially dependent on working those good shifts. And so maybe they would be less likely to report that. And then on the flip side, too, they they also might be getting harassed by customers. Um, Customers are a frequent source of harassment in the restaurant industry, and they might be too afraid to speak up because they're dependent on that tip. And they also might be too afraid 
need to report that customer to the restaurant management because the restaurant management um, wants to obviously get good reviews. They want to keep their customers coming, um, so the restaurant management might not be likely to do something about it too. And then on top of all of that, you have the fact that restaurant staffs are this kind of, you know, this hard partying group of people that tend to blur professional lines to begin with. Um, it's a place where uh, you can drink at work. Um, a lot of restaurants have shift drinks uh, where you where you get off of your shift and you can have a free drink after work. Um, it's where people go out together. Uh, there's this kind of camaraderie in the restaurant industry that some people really love about restaurant culture, but at the same time, it can lead to this kind of crossing and blurring of lines where people begin to think that certain behavior that would really not be acceptable in other their workplaces becomes acceptable in the restaurant setting. Ah, so so it, it's almost as if uh, you know the measures that are in place in you know your traditional business setting, and I, I'm just referring to you know just your, mm-hmm. your your regular corporate corporate office. It's almost as if they're not in place, as you mentioned. There's there's no HR. Um, you you know I think at, at most companies there's either a no dating policy or or if you're going to date you need to oftentimes kind of um, acknowledge you know both parties need to consent and acknowledge that it's you know that it is consensual and, and everything mm-hmm. whereas whereas with restaurants you have yeah I, I hadn't thought of it <laughs> I'm so glad we talked because I hadn't thought of this mm-hmm. like the the restaurant down the street isn't going to have an HR department right so who mm-hmm. do you go mm-hmm. to there's not, you know, sexual harassment training, which I know in the state of California here is required, I think, if you have over 20 employees or such. Um, and then almost that culture of, uh, a, dare I say, encouragement of dating, uh, having friends that have been in the industry, you know, it's almost like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're expected to be friendly and get together. So I hadn't hadn't thought of um, those. So, so I guess if there's measures in place, uh, some of which are legal or some of which are codified by law and others of which are just, um, you know, unwritten rules, perhaps. Um, what are some of the steps that are being taken uh, in restaurants, in the restaurant industry to uh, to combat some of this harassment that's going on? What have you seen, uh, whether it's policies being implemented or or, or maybe even a shift of where people spend their dollars. Uh, are there any shifts that you have seen that uh, that are swinging this in, in a more positive direction? Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, it, you know, a lot of restaurants have kind of remained silent on this, actually, over the last um, couple of months of, of exposés, uh, either written by me or by other reporters who are doing excellent work in this field. You know, we've seen a couple of big chefs um, kind of be exposed for their bad behavior. There was um, John Besh in New Orleans. There was Mario Battaglia, sorry, Mario Batali, of course, in New York. Um, and locally here in Washington, D.C., um, Mike Isabella, who was on Top Chef, he was recently sued for sexual harassment. Um, and so, you know, when, when there's a big story like that, of course, um, the restaurant groups have to respond to it. And so in those cases, you know, we've seen sometimes someone will step down um, in the case of Besh or Batali, who's divesting from his company right now. Um, sometimes they will stay in place, um, as Mike Isabella has. Um, he has denied the charges from his lawsuit, and uh, they've actually settled that suit. Uh, and as part of the settlement, we were told that he would be making changes to his human resources department and that they would be strengthening their sexual harassment training. Um, but we haven't really gotten any details on how that's going to work out for them. Um, 
But then in the cases of restaurants that haven't really, you know, had the spotlight shined on them, uh, people haven't really been doing too much. I think one thing that's important to note, too, is that uh, there's a lot of female-owned restaurants. Of course, that's that's a minority in this industry. There are fewer women at top levels, um, which could contribute to this problem as well. Um, but I think that those uh, female-owned restaurants and female-led restaurants have been kind of raising their voices in the wake of all of this and saying that, you know, we offer a, a kinder, gentler workplace, um, and this is, this is a place where women can feel safe working. Um, and then another interesting campaign that we've seen actually comes from Open Table. Um, one, one thing that's tricky about the restaurant industry, of course, is that there are so many independent operators across the country. I mean, a lot of people who own restaurants own maybe one or two or three or four. And then, of course, there are the bigger chains that are owned by corporations. But um, in terms of independent operators, there's nothing that really links them to other restaurants. So it's hard to have this kind of top-down voice telling people what to do. Um, but Open Table, uh, you know, they have this, this measure, I guess this campaign um, called Open Kitchens. And it's more of a, a public service announcement for employees of restaurants, and they're encouraging people to put a poster in the back of the restaurant, like where employees only would see it, uh, telling people that they have rights not to be harassed and that this is these are the various agencies that they can report misbehavior to. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's kind of – it's a very small step. I'm not sure how much of a difference it will make, but I think the fact that OpenTable um, – touches so many restaurants in this country and interacts with so many restaurants, I think it's good to see that they are sort of taking a stand on this as well. Mm. Well, we hope, hopefully the genie's a little bit out of the bottle and we can see some systemic change in what's mm -hmm. kind of a fractured industry, um, you know, fractured in many ways, I think. One, uh, I, th I, would, I would wager the mo most restaurants are independently owned uh, mm -hmm. and are not part of a, a restaurant group or franchise. Uh, fractured, I think, also in that, um, I, I again would would guess that most employees don't work at a restaurant for a very long extended of time. It's not, you know, um, th that they're intending to build their career over a five year time period. It might just be seasonal in many cases. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the customers themselves, we, you know, you're 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 in a restaurant for an hour, hour and a half, and you leave. Um, so it's very difficult to hold a, a customer accountable. Uh, whereas perhaps you know a large company might have a if they have a client or a customer that is harassing their employees, uh, I personally know that I worked for companies that said, we will get, we will fire them if, mm -hmm. if that happens. Whereas a customer can come in, you know, ca cause damage uh, and leave. And yeah, you, know, you might never see them again. You know, they're, they're on their way or they were just there or whatnot. So, um, well, thank you for, for shining a spotlight on, on, on that. Um, switching gears a little bit. Um, Millennials is another topic that you you regularly cover, and mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about uh, a survey from from some of your recent reporting, and it was a survey commissioned by uh, by Porch, I think it was Porch.com, mm -hmm. and it says uh, the fact that nearly sixty percent of millennials don't know how to make salad dressing, mm -hmm. more than twenty. <laughs> um, <laughs> which I'm not a millennial and I don't know how to make salad dressing either, but that's a different story. 60%. Uh, the point being here, more than 25% judged themselves incapable of preparing a birthday cake from a boxed mix, which I think is usually just directions, maybe an egg and some water. Uh, and when shown a picture of a butter knife, only 63% of millennials knew what it was. So one third of millennials 
cannot identify a butter knife. Mm -hmm. uh, 70% of boomers can carve a turkey, but only 40% of millennials can. And we can only assume that they're going to hack it up and not do it the right way. So what's going on here? <laughs> Laura. <laughs> Um, it's funny, you know, um, so people, people rag on millennials all the time. Um, sure. and I, as, as an older millennial, I guess, because I'm, I'm 33, um, which is the, the top end of being a millennial. Um, you know, on one hand, I, I kind of, um, appreciate it because, you know, a lot of these things can be accurate. There's a lot of stereotypes about millennials that, that are based in some truth. But on the other hand, um, sometimes they're a little bit unfair. Um, and so this, this survey really struck me as being being kind of funny um, because it kind of confirmed all of these things that people always want to believe about millennials is that they're that they're like hopelessly inept that they're just like <laughs> grown up babies that can't do anything for themselves. Um, but then when you know the the survey just kind of put this data out there without really analyzing why some of these things would be accurate. And so one thing that I um, had learned about that I thought was really interesting, uh, you know, there there's a good reason why um, millennials are are not as very, you know, they're not as savvy in the kitchen. Um, they don't really know how to cook as well as previous generations did. But there are a lot of reasons for this. Um, part of the reason is just the kind of delayed onset of adulthood um, in that more of them are moving home to be with their parents. They are kind of being taken care of for longer. The age of marriage and having a family is much older. But then part of it is actually technology, too. Um, and I learned about this this thing called cognitive offloading, um, which is, I guess to put it in kind of a shorthand way, it's it's kind of that we've outsourced our memory to, to Google in a way. You don't really have to learn how to do these things. You don't have to remember how to do these things if you know you can just Google it every time or you can look it up or you'll, you know, you can look up a, a recipe on Pinterest. Um, it's kind of relying on an external factor like your computer to remember a recipe or technique for you rather than committing it to heart. Um, and, you know, when we commit things to heart, we learn them uh, better than if we if we just read them. So, so there's all these factors that kind of lead to millennials having these problems with cooking. Um, and there have been a bunch of uh, a bunch of things that have sprung up to kind of help them too. And one of them, actually, the Washington Post, uh, we have a new vertical called Voraciously, and it's geared towards the millennial cook. Uh, and it has kind of easier recipes, more basic recipes, things that are faster, that you don't have to have a lot of money or like weird, crazy ingredients that you have to go out to the suburbs to get. Um, it's kind of geared towards this novice cook and the idea that, um, you know, we want millennials to learn how to cook, um, but we want to make it easy for them too. And we want to, we want to meet them where they are. Right. Yeah. And, and, I think I think there's a, a few factors as well, you know, that we're all we're all busier. I mean, it, it's just, mm -hmm. you know, uh, as a parent of two, uh, I mean, it's just it's it's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> just, mm -hmm. you know, the, sure. the, you know, the, the, you know, just the number of activities and everything. Um, it's just it has been a change there. But it also I, I think that there's this this deformalizing uh, of, of our culture and um you know, there's there's some of the ceremonies of of family are not um, not as prevalent as well. And maybe I'll give one example. You know, our 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 kitchen set, you know, purchased by by, by someone 15 years ago, I would imagine, uh, you know, as a wedding present, mm -hmm. has the two different lengths of forks, right? 
And as I think my dad at least attempted to teach me, one is for salad and one is for the main course. Uh, I, I would imagine that most millennials don't care about their fork size, right? Um, and, and I use that as just one example of, of this kind of deformalizing where, um, you know, it used to be we'd, we'd sit down and, and, you know, I knew when I was growing up, we ate off of, you know, the nice plates every night. And I think there were probably multiple forks in front of me as well. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, those traditions and customs, uh, I, I, I just don't think they hold as much weight. And and I think there's other proof in that related to how, how we all dress now and, and whatnot. But um, to, to, to bring it around, and I know that you don't necessarily cover, you know, or perhaps you do, but supermarket and retail and like, if we can prognosticate a little bit here, what, what does this mean for the future of, of, of kind of eating is, is mm-hmm. almost like, is the dinner going away? Uh, I don't know if, 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 if the, the lack of ability to recognize a butter knife is indicative of that or not, but, um, mm-hmm. is it. Or or are we just going to completely shift to a world of, you know, prepackaged, pre-delivered, pre-measured world Uh, from from just your perspective and, and, you know, all the different, um, you know, rocks you look under through your research and and culture and everything. Where do you see, you know, home dining moving forward? Uh, We know where it's moved with restaurants to customization, fast casual and everything. But what about what about what about home dining? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one thing that is really interesting is that even though millennials don't um, don't really know maybe as much about cooking, they care really deeply about food. They care where their food comes from. They mm-hmm. care about how, uh, you know, they care about food as a social status symbol, too. Um, and so I think another thing that studies have um, that have, have determined, something that I've um, included in a couple of my stories, is that um, even though millennials um, care really deeply about food, they're not highly invested in making it either because they don't have the time or the resources or the skills, but they they want to feel like they've made something. Um, they want to feel like they've accomplished something. They want to be able to brag about the food they've made. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think one area where we've seen this kind of play out in an interesting way is um, is home delivery services like Blue Apron. So Blue Apron um, is is, I would say, not actually meaning that need for millennials because it's it's a little bit too too much or too hard is is what some people have said um it's it, it you know it, it has this goal of teaching them how to cook but sometimes it involves like using every single pan in their house um it takes too long uh it it you know isn't quite environmentally friendly too with all of the different wrapping and the packaging and everything um and so I, another thing that we've seen uh that kind of meets people halfway are these delivery services um I know one of them that I've heard of, I think gobble is what it's called, um, where where there's, it's like halfway done for you, and then you kind of put the finishing touches on it. Or, or there's a couple of tech startups that do a similar thing to um, – there are meal delivery services where the meal is like mostly made and you put it in the oven, but you make the sauce. And so then you get this sort of sense of accomplishment and you do learn something. It's a very simple, small thing. Um, but it kind of rewards that sort of millennial thinking in a way um, that that they made this. Um, I made this dinner myself, even though really you only made 
part of it. Um, I think that there will be more um, people that kind of address that need, too. And I think that it's not just a millennial need, too. Um, it's something that I could see time-strapped families being invested in as well, um, or, or, or just people who don't really have a full kitchen, maybe who live in a city in a small apartment and don't really have the, the means to cook an elaborate meal. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's one way that uh, supermarkets or delivery services or tech startups would, would consider meeting that millennial need. It's all just part of the evolving culture. And I'm not one prone to uh, to promote anything, but I'm going to be checking out Gobble <laughs> pretty much uh, <laughs> later today. That that sounds like something right right down our our busy alley. Um, so so uh, you, you've been generous with your time and 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 in uh, in you know giving us additional insight into some of these topics that I know that are on top of a lot of folks' minds. Um, looking ahead a little bit, what, what are the, some of the topics and, and just things out there that are interesting you and, and what's kind of inspiring, uh, inspiring some of the articles that you're going to be writing and working on right now? Oh, sure. Um, well, so I'm I'm still writing a lot about sexual harassment in the restaurant industry. Um, I'll have another article about that coming out shortly, and also the role of women in the restaurant industry, too, um, and how, um, how women's ideas in the restaurant industry um, can and should be listened to more. Um, and then on the flip side, on the completely silly side, um, I do a video series for the Washington Post where I taste test all of these very silly millennial kind of inspired foods. Um, and so those have included uh, like unicorn cereal or rainbow flavored things or um, charcoal, black food, edible glitter, millennial pink, all of these different kind of Instagram inspired foods. Um, I try them. Many of them are terrible, actually, <laughs> but that's all that's all part of it. Um, and so that's something that I'll continue to do throughout the year, too. <laughs> very fun. Very fun. Uh, so let's talk about how folks can find you. You're at Maura Judkis, and that's M-A-U-R-A-J-U-D-K-I-S. So that's at Maura Judkis on Twitter and Instagram as well, I believe. Uh, and then I would recommend anyone to Google your name too. Uh, first thing that will come up is all of your articles at the Washington Post. Um, you're quite proficient in your writing, uh, you know, pretty much an article almost every every two or three days, but um, certainly not of the fluff variety. Each one is well-researched, well-thought-out, and uh, it's, it's not often that you're covering a topic that really has been covered by others. I, I, you're, you're definitely right out there on the forefront. Is there any other way that folks can follow or find you? That's pretty much it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you for all the great, great, uh, you know, content that you're putting out there, um, particularly around, you know, the Me Too movement related to restaurants. Uh, I imagine others are covering it, but I'm not sure if anyone's doing it with the same fervor you are. So uh, mm -hmm. a personal thank you uh, is, for, for, for that. And, um, thanks for joining our podcast and, you know, as trends emerge, we hope that you'll come back and, and continue to share uh, insights with us. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on Just a Taste, a Chef's Best production. Join us again next time as we talk to more experts in marketing, retail, and production in the food and beverage industry. You can always visit us at chefsbest.com to learn more.